Investment Arbitration Reporter, also known as IA Reporter, is our sponsor for Season 5. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. IA Reporter's team of expert analysts offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IA Reporter launched a new content feature, a searchable data set of more than 1,500 ISDS cases, including party, arbitrator, and counsel information. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. Hello, and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Brian Kotick. And I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your wonderful co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world in 1%, only 1% women. <laughs> yes, and it <laughs> needs to be more. Happy International Women's Day, guys. Is it Women's Day or is there a Women's Month? in march is that a thing or is it just women's oh, day today it's only in america you have months dedicated to things oh, okay, okay really <laughs> well it should be women's day every day but you know we have to say we should we shouldn't go there and and i'm not the only woman <laughs> on this podcast i don't think we should be saying happy women's day though it's not a happy day isn't the purpose of the day to like highlight all the various structural issues and inequalities we have in the world and that's not a happy occasion that's like something that is Oh my gosh, doom and gloom from the socialist Swedish. <laughs> Please, the news is full of doom and gloom. Let's be happy about, Let's be you know. Happy, happy Women's Day. Happy Women's Day. Happy no, patriarchy I, I... to you, both of you. Happy structural oppression. Also, yeah, I, love, I love the mansplaining, Jill. Thank you. <laughs> oh, this is why it's so good to have you on the podcast. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, what have you guys been up to? I've been working, and that's pretty much it, unfortunately. I think we're all slightly overworked right now, which is common this time of year. No, I, I think you're right. It's January, it's like, yawn from the holidays. And then <laughs> yes. February's like, oh, let's get ready. And March is like, boom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a busy lot. month. Yeah, but before I'm in Easter. London, and I have a back garden now, so I can at least take my reprieve in the back garden. Yay, to recording to your in your house next time we can see each other. <laughs> exactly. That will be soon. I mean, we're supposed to be opening up quite shortly uh, in, in a few months, if you call that shortly. But compared to the year we've had, that is short. Positivity. <laughs> um, but what about you, Sadia? What have you been up to? Uh, just the regular dealing with council work. And just these days, I'm actually concentrating on, on something a bit less... Uh, what we call sexy in the arbitration world, to use Jules' term, uh, working on a 
construction arbitration um but it's still interesting but yeah it, it, it's a yeah it's time consuming and oh i hear a cat in the background <laughs> <laughs> put me in the category of people with cat interruption <laughs> she's she's agreeing with what i'm saying yeah and then <laughs> <laughs> yes valerie has agreed <laughs> exactly and, uh, and then, like you mentioned, the month of March is very busy in the arbitration world anyway. So there's a bunch of conference um, that I've been involved in in the past, uh, actually in coming, coming in the coming weeks, which uh, maybe I can, which should I mention them now, guys? Or yeah, yeah, later? Um, yeah, I'm just going to tell uh, just, of course, that the American Society of International Law Conference is coming up. So there's the annual meeting, which is going to be virtual this year with amazing guests. Um, and it's going to be between the 24th and the 26th of March. So still, uh, of course, time to register and please do register. There's a bunch of really exciting panels. Um, the overarching topic is on reconciling, reconceiving sorry, international law creativity in times of crisis. And I've been um, very lucky actually to organize one of the panels on the track, the international uh, arbitration and dispute resolution track, which is going to be on institutional arbitrations. So it's going to be a bunch of exciting people coming in to speak, including X president of the ICC, Mr. Alexi Moore. Um, and of course, we're also having regional representation from Cairo this time, Ismail Salim and uh, Regi, um, oh my God, Remy, Remy Jabe. I always mess oh, up his name. Those, yeah. those French names what? are so hard to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's so hard uh, to pronounce. Uh, he's, he's not going to be happy about this. So what's um, the focus going to be? Just comparative or will they be in a, a full knockdown drag out fight? Um, so this particular panel is going to talk about one of Jules, I think, favorite topics is the, the role of institutional arbitration in creating norms and, you know, what their mm. roles have been, um, especially in these times of crisis. They're going to be discussing that. So, yeah, there's going to be a comparative approach and also perspective from arbitrators like uh, Chin Biao is going to be there and perspective from um, academics as well. So looking forward to that. Um, and also uh, oncoming is another conference organized by ISIL, which is actually a discussion um, of an upcoming book on identity and diversity on the bench, on the judicial bench. So that's uh, going to be on the 12th of March. Um, in here, I have not written in the book, which is a compilation of really interesting article on the topic, um, but I will be commenting uh, on the book. So that's going to be on 12th of March. Friday, um, in, in other words. Huh? That is, sorry, yes, this coming Friday. Yeah, this coming Friday. Also webinar. Um, so anyone can sign up and listen to it. So that's good. And then lastly, and sorry, guys, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> taking a bit long. But for people so who love, love conferences and clicking on a YouTube uh, from their living room or bedroom or whatever, um, we have, and for those looking for French-speaking stuff, there's been a conference uh, that we organized with a firm and uh, the African Academy of international law on uh, Africa and international environmental law in Africa. Mm. I mean, that's an exciting topic. So if you want to watch this, then we have people from the African Development Bank, uh, a lot of different institutions such as the ACT, 
um, and a bunch of really uh, amazing arbitrators and speakers, myself included. <laughs> of course. Very busy. <laughs> so anyways, so that's on YouTube. We, we can put maybe pop up the link um, under this episode if my wonderful co-host agrees. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you have to remind me, though. I'm usually the one uploading, and I am very forgetful lately. I, I'll send I you an email to remind you. It's COVID brain. It's a real thing. My mom has coined the term. <laughs> COVID brain. Oh, yeah, it's just I like the it. inability to like recall vocabulary as quick as we should and, and you know, memory of, of meetings and stuff. It's, it's definitely, I think when you're out and about and getting like constant stimuli, your brain is much more activated. And I think when mm. you have the same four walls and your, te- and your television screen and your computer screen, I think we're all just a bit like not running on all the cylinders. Mm. Amen. Who knows? But I'm happy that we're promoting things in different languages. I think we should be the form for that. So I think um, I'm very happy to do that. I had just realized that the two guests that we have for this episode are not women. Uh, so it's not, uh, but I think it actually leads us gently into our happy fun time topic. But first, um, we have an interview. Uh, Sadi and I interviewed um, Yaroslav. Greg Ishog, that talk about a last name that was going to be difficult to pronounce, but in the segment, I pronounce it correctly. Um, he's the deputy business ombudsman for the Business Ombudsman Council in Ukraine, um, in Kiev. And what we talk about, um, Sadi and I talk with Yaroslav about, is this means of an alternative dispute resolution before something actually does uh, manifest into a, a complete arbitration or in lieu of. Um, so it's a really, I think it's a really interesting initiative and a lot of buy-in um, domestically. So I, um, it's just bringing a new perspective to the podcast. Again, part of our part of our goal for this season was to bring um, different participants into the conversation. Um, then I interviewed um, Andre Luis Montero, who is at from Queen Emanuel, Council at Queen Emanuel, uh, from hailing from Brazil, and we talk about the intersection between insolvency and arbitration, um, and we think that it is very apropos at this um, day and age because of what is happening in our what we perceive to be an economic crisis on the horizon for companies um, post-COVID. So um, we think that arbitration may be seeing a lot of elements of insolvency creeping its way into the arbitral proceedings and the impact they may have um, both mm. before, during, and after <clears throat> the arbitration. Yeah, that really is great. interesting. Yeah, and then we have less substantive, less prepared, less structured, happy fun time about manals since we're recording on 8th of March. You're Manals, the one who I, qualifies Manals as a fun time as opposed to International <laughs> Women's Day as not a happy day. For the record. <laughs> no, oh. it's all consistent. It all oh. it is all consistent. My my issue is that we're supposed to be talking about issues and how to address them rather than patting each other on the back. This is what mm. we're doing for happy fun time. We are having a happy fun time by <laughs> contributing to a conversation. Not buying flowers and saying nice things. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we're going to have a whole segment on how to celebrate something. That would be a... <laughs> I can't wait for that segment just to see how, to, to hear Jill's perspective on this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Sadia, you will definitely have to contribute, but we can, as allies, <laughs> as allies, <laughs> what we can do when you face a man a male panel. I don't think we've defined it yet. But. Yes, a manel. 
I tried. I was about to give a whole intro, and then Sadi, I just stabbed me in the back with a fork. <laughs> Sorry. Interrupted. A mano. It's, it's you two minus me. That's a mano. <laughs> that is yes. a mano. We almost <laughs> we manoled for a few seasons, and now <laughs> we did. Now we're a panel. All right, let's get started before any blood is drawn. Can you pronounce your last name as well? Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so sorry about that. Uh, Don't apologize. Uh, <laughs> it's for uh, us. Hrehirchak. <laughs> uh, yes, Hrehirchak. 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 Yes. Yaroslav Hrehirchak. Is that okay? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't even sound sort of conventionally Ukrainian in a sense because I am originally from western part, uh, from the Carpathian Mountains, and. Uh, I guess, yeah, that's where the roots of the surname come. Can, mm-hmm. I mean, we're already recording. I think that's a great start. Um, that is a great start. Can yeah. you just explain what, what, where that root would come from, from the Western Ukraine? Uh, it's the uh, region called uh, Transcarpathia, uh, which is uh, not that large when it comes to the area that is occupied by the region, but uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, it has borders with Romania, uh, Slovakia, Poland, and Hungary. I mm. see. Interesting. Well, thank you for coming. So we have Yaroslav Rekuchak with us today, and we are very excited about this topic because we're branching a bit away from arbitration, but we're still in the realm of an alternative dispute resolution. And Yaroslav, you are a member of the Business Ombudsman Council. Is that correct? Is the title member or what is the title? Are you an ombudsman? The title is Deputy Business Ombudsman of Ukraine. Okay. So what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, indeed, that's uh, uh, substantially, it means that I'm the part of the management team uh, tasked to uh, manage the activities of the Business uh, Ombudsman Council, uh, which is uh, um, somewhat unconventional example of uh, the specialized ombudsman mechanism uh, tasked to... uh, accept complaints specifically from businesses uh, and probably investigate uh, instances of uh, business malpractice that uh, are specified in those complaints. And uh, uh, indeed, while doing so, we are uh, operating on the basis of the traditional international principles attributable to any ombudsman institution, which is uh, independence, uh, impartiality, and uh, confidentiality. Of course, by definition, we are not vested with any uh, binding authority. Uh, We exercise our leverage by issuing uh, uh, recommendations. uh, And uh, indeed, we uh, we rely on our uh, reputational uh, significance, uh, actually seeking the eventual implementations of those uh, recommendations, who can be either uh, individual or systemic. Right. Uh, so can you kind of lay out the framework, how, you know, making a complaint before the ombudsman, what are the kind of qualifications of that the claim would need to qualify to be presented um, to you and how you would choose which person would would be the ombudsman for that case? Right. Uh, the eligibility uh, uh, criteria, so to say, are uh, pretty straightforward. You've got to be a business. Uh, regardless of the size, 
And uh, what you uh, got to challenge is the instance of the business model practice, which effectively is uh, any action, inaction, or decision at the part of any public authority, including uh, subnational governments or state-owned or communal-owned enterprises, uh, who uh, in, to any extent negatively affect the business's ability to actually carry out its uh, statutory function. It's very simple. Uh, in terms of uh, criteria as such, interestingly, in our rules of the procedure, uh, the uh, criteria has deliberately been uh, um, elaborated in such a way uh, that uh, at the Business Ombudsman Council, we are obliged to accept into consideration all complaints, except for those that uh, originate from purely private to private circumstances, or they relate to the merits that are being currently adjudicated or has already been reflected in the court decision that entered into force. We have kind of a statute of limitations, which is one year, but we employ this criteria rarely in the sense that if we observe that the instance of business malpractice has a continuous negative uh, effect, uh, we would uh, uh, take it into account and still take it on board. We do have uh, several stages in our work. The first one is uh, kind of a prima facie review, 10 days after the complaint arrived to ascertain whether it's generally eligible. And then if uh, it, 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 it is, we accept the complaint into consideration. It uh, becomes uh, a case and we have uh, up to 90 days to conduct our investigation. Having said that, um, uh, the uh, uh, statistics proves that uh, about 25% of our uh, uh, complaints, uh, what became case, are resolved within 30 days. Uh, wow. uh, because, you know, the typology of those instances is quite homogeneous. You know, the scenarios do repeat itself. Uh, some um, uh, further 30% are resolved within the next uh, 30 days. So that the number of complaints that uh, require extension uh, whose investigation would be carried out beyond the original 90 days uh, is relatively small, uh, right. from 2 to, 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 to 3%. I have uh, so many questions. Um, Go ahead. Uh, to, I'll start with two that are, well, I'll start with one and then I will logically move through them. But can you um, initiate one of these proceedings or you know, s- submit it to the council in parallel to any other proceeding? No, uh, this okay. is effectively one of the criteria that makes the uh, complaint not eligible. If you mean by parallel proceeding, you mean like the- Like if uh, a court case was going on, uh, no. you know, addressing a similar issue. Or an okay. arbitration, yeah. Right. No, 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 actually any forum, uh, if any forum is invoked, uh, uh, effectively it uh, makes us no longer eligible to be considered as an option for the aggravated party. Right. Having said that, however, and uh, this kind of demonstrates the nexus between what we are doing uh, with uh, uh, both, I would say, uh, arbitration and uh, mediation as a matter of the fact. And I will probably attempt to demonstrate how these three pillars of ADR can uh, get together uh, uh, in, in, in terms of or in the context of the activity that we are carrying out. Uh, assume that, uh, uh, or this is quite customary, that in the circumstances where, let's say, our complainant who lodged the complaint with us has subsequently uh, uh, filed the notice of arbitration and the uh, cooling off period under the BIT or multilateral instrument kicks off, right? Then mm-hmm. uh, 
pursuant to the uh, piece of a secondary uh, legislation that we have here in Ukraine, the Minister of Justice is obliged to uh, set up a so-called intergovernmental working group, uh, which is kind of an ad hoc platform uh, aimed at uh, ascertaining whether the possible um, uh, settlement or reconciliation would be possible during the pre-trial stage. And it would be customary for the ministry to invite someone like me to sit in the composition of this uh, uh, intergovernmental working group, uh, whose meetings would uh, comprise both confidential and non-confidential part. The non-confidential is entitled to enable the claimant and its counsel to uh, present the case. And uh, I would sit there and uh, sort of uh, uh, in my capacity of... um, uh, semi-governmental official who still uh, represents the uh, body, which is equally distanced from both business and government. Mm-hmm. It's kind of organic for me to uh, sometimes step in and do a bit of a mediation uh, uh, exercise during that uh, that meeting. And the technique would vary from the conventional facilitative uh, uh, technique, which is just to facilitate the constructive negotiations between the, the, the parties towards... Uh, uh, a more uh, uh, persuasive uh, technique, uh, which would uh, uh, be very much descriptive of the function that or uh, authority that we are having at the uh, Ombudsman Institution, which is not to be shy about the merits. And if we are confident that we uh, would like to support uh, the position of the complainant, we do so on our own behalf, and we would issue individual recommendations. So that's how this triangle might, in the realities of this uh, uh, world, kind of come come together and uh, uh, operate uh, uh, in wild voice, so to say. So just, uh, sorry, Barin, if I just may ask a very general question is, how does one submit a request to an ombudsman? Do you need, Mm. do you refer to a clause, like a, like an, like a, you know, similar to an arbitral clause in the contract where the parties had agreed that if there's a dispute, it, we were first referred a matter to uh, to ombudsman, or is it a, an, an agreement that the parties have reached after the dispute? Uh, right. Let me answer uh, uh, as follows. Uh, first of all, uh, because it's important in order to understand the context in which we operate, we are quite a unique institution in the sense that we have not been created by a one founding father, right? It's uh, typical uh, for the uh, parliament to create a human rights ombudsman, right? Or uh, the Chico Corporation or a university to have its in-house ombudsman. Uh, but still the shareholder, so to say, is one. In our case, and that demonstrates how the uh, uh, utilization of ombudsman mechanism is evolving in the modern world. Uh, we have uh, uh, three groups that have set us up, the, and w- w- they are actually represented in our supervisory board structure. Uh, it's the government of Ukraine, second are uh, international financial institutions, namely EBRD and OECD, and the third group are local business associations. The idea back in 2014, when the respective resolution of the Cabinet of Ministers was adopted, was to sort of bring uh, under one roof all stakeholders of the process of relationship between business and government in Ukraine uh, together and uh, enable them to uh, carry out the strategic management of the um, institution. This factor, together with the quality of the people who are working here, 
I guess, are indeed those elements of the reputational leverage that I mentioned earlier today and which explains why, as a matter of the fact, we are so effective. Yeah, since uh, May 2015, when we became operational, we received uh, 8,524 uh, complaints, <laughs> out wow. of which uh, I actually have it handy. Uh, 2,500 has not been uh, accepted into consideration because of those criteria that I generally mentioned. Uh, currently, we are investigating 273. We closed uh, against 5,684 cases, and uh, 67 are currently in the prima facie uh, review. Wow. Uh, uh, the direct financial impact actually exceeds uh, 18 billion hryvnias, which is uh, more or less 700 million dollars, uh, uh, I would say, something like that. Mm. We don't have such a KPI in our activity, but nonetheless, uh, we have achieved that. I really want to uh, actually expand on some of these cases. But first, I, so to follow up on Sadia's question, yeah. so a party can effectively say we don't want to go to this ombudsman and then no proceeding would take place. Is that yeah, correct? absolutely. Okay. The, the, the uh, idea to approach uh, the business ombudsman with uh, the complaint is purely optional. And it doesn't mm -hmm. cost anything either. Uh, yes, uh, the, it, it, because, and this is another uh, interesting element which uh, explains the both hybrid nature of our institution and their preconditions for its success. Um, uh, yes, indeed, our services are free of charge for the um, complainants. Uh, and the reason is because uh, uh, in reality, even uh, our uh, founding fathers, uh, our shareholders, are not uh, financing our activity. The financing comes from the European Union and 13 countries uh, who are allocating funds at the designated multi-donor account that EBRD maintains in London to finance several Ukrainian projects, including Business Ombudsman Council. Wow. So you see, uh, it's, it's actually in the conditions of jurisdictions like uh, uh, Ukraine, it's extremely important to maintain this uh, financial independence because it operates right. as a key precondition not only to hire quality staff, quality personnel, but also to uh, uh, operate without any elements of uh, vested interest dependency either from the complainant or from the or from the state. And indeed, those complainants who are willing to approach us, they can do this freely by just filling in a very simple online form on our website. Uh, indeed, some evidentiary base needs to be attached. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the complaint can be lodged uh, by mail. Uh, you know, we are, we, uh, we are not depriving our potential complainants for any opportunity to approach us in a new course. Right. And then do you, um, so everyone can go, it's boi.org.ua and it's interesting because they list, they have a tab for cases that have been actually uh, considered by the BOC and then also the um, actions taken and the results achieved, which I think is um, a very a unique function. Um, but I would, so when you say investigate, because you get, you get one of these complaints and then you say we investigate them, is it just an independent investigation based off the evidence or do you mean investigate, meaning you review the evidence presented and don't undertake anything um, independent beyond the evidence presented? No, no, uh, indeed we would uh, uh, not uh, limit ourselves only by a 
simple desk exercise whereby a designated inspector uh, would, uh, we call them uh, inspectors uh, or investigators really in, in English. Mm. Uh, uh, the designated inspector to whom the case has been uh, allocated, and by the way, once it's uh, it has arrived and uh, properly registered to uh, by our secretarial uh, sonal, it's uh, supposed to be distributed on a totally random uh, basis. Uh, it can end up in the hands of any of the uh, 16 uh, inspectors that uh, we have. I see. Uh, and in my my position, by the way, I supervise. Uh, uh, activities of six such uh, inspectors. Uh, business ombudsman uh, 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 does this with regard to five of my colleagues and uh, another colleague of mine, another deputy, uh, has also six. Uh, I see. Um, uh, to 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 supervise. Uh, but indeed, apart from the analysis of the documents uh, or any other uh, evidentiary materials, we would set up uh, meetings. We would send letters. We would engage in all possible um, uh, ways of uh, organizing active dialogue uh, with the involvement of both the uh, complainant and the respective complainee. Uh, we would actually, as a, a very natural platform for us, uh, if uh, exists, uh, uh, we would attend the administrative hearings, which is the pre-trial mechanism that exists at the level of, let's say, Ukrainian tax service or uh, at the level of the Ministry of Justice. Um, and that would be a natural uh, platform for us to uh, express our position on the merits and uh, issue recommendations and uh, see uh, how, how this is ultimately being implemented. Importantly, the recommendation can be issued either uh, in course of the investigation in the form of the letter or upon the completion of the investigation, it might constitute the part of the resolutory decision of the business ombudsman, which is the document uh, we uh, issue upon the completion of our investigation. And if uh, in a recommendation is contained in um, uh, that decision, it's not the end of the story because uh, we uh, place it for the uh, continuous uh, monitoring, seeking its eventual implementation at some point in time in the future. Do you have um, data as to how many of these recommendations have been uh, successfully enforced in the, since your um, since the creation, 2015? Sorry, this is an excellent question. Uh, uh, I think the number of individual recommendations that we reissue it with those individual cases uh, nears 3,000. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, the implementation rate exceeds 90%, which is absolutely amazing, that given is. the fact that we are not the institution that is vested with binding authority, as we all now know, and which is probably just the excellent demonstration of the fact that if you structure reputational leverage right in the conditions of Ukraine as a, I don't know, Slavic post-Soviet jurisdiction, it might bring uh, wonderful results. And I'm sorry, I just also have a, a, a question as to that because you do, you, you talk about legitimacy and I do think it's really important. And that's one of the key things that is under scrutiny in the arbitration world right now. Um, you say there's around 60 or so investigators, as you, you call them. Do the parties have any say as to who is appointed? 
do they get the challenge who's appointed? Is there like a declaration saying the investigator is conflict free or something like how did you gain that neutral like legitimacy in the eyes of the parties? Uh, well, uh, investigators are those who are examining the merits uh, um, and who indeed prepare our documents where the draft recommendation or another expression of the uh, council's view are set forth. But uh, they are not adjudicators in the sense uh, that this term is used in the ADR world with regard to arbitrators. Uh, they are operational officers in that sense, and they are not. Uh, they are indeed supposed to be uh, unbiased and independent from uh, both the complainant and complainee. Uh, and indeed, the uh, uh, um, institution's uh, uh, integrity is preserved by the fact that those complaints uh, once received, they're indeed distributed on a random basis. And if a particular individual inspector in observes some elements of a, uh, a potential conflict of interest vis-a-vis -vis those matters that ended up in his hands, for instance, because the counsel uh, who or law firm that is acting on behalf of a particular complainant is his former employee, it, we would expect such an uh, inspector to uh, uh, approach uh, us in the management team, advise us about this, and we would make a replacement. But otherwise, the default the approach is that... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's actually good practice to ensure that uh, uh, complainants are not uh, supposed to influence any elements of our operational activity. Moreover, when it comes to our uh, independence on the operational uh, level, it's important to emphasize that uh, the uh, supervisory board uh, comprising uh, representatives of these three group of parties whom I already mentioned, they also are not, and have, and they, I, I, I pledge, they have never during this almost six years of our activity, never uh, intruded uh, or any have affected the manner in which we, at the level of our uh, management team, do day-to-day uh, uh, -day, uh, investigation of our complaints. I also think there's a bit of a safeguard considering it's just a recommendation and not a binding and enforceable decision that would deprive anyone of going to court or arbitration in the future. Mm -hmm. That you kind of, I mean, even if you're like this, this ombudsman is biased, you could maybe kind of divert the rest of the case somewhere else. Could you, um, could you just give us an example of one of the cases that you've worked on just to end kind of the recommendation you gave just to kind of concretize what we're talking about? I would try to, um, yeah, they, uh, I would start by probably saying, and that would be probably curious for some of the listeners to, to see that uh, uh, more than 60% of our complaints that we receive right now are on a tax uh, uh, administration related uh, topics. Mm -hmm. uh, about 17%, and this is uh, uh, indeed unfortunate, uh, this is somewhat descriptive of the peculiarities of the situation in Ukraine, but some 17% relates to the pressure that is inflicted by law enforcers against uh, business. Mm -hmm. Some 15% of complaints are those that are lodged by um, uh, businesses to challenge alleged malpractices as the part of the subnational governments, local city, uh, village councils, uh, etc. Uh, the rest are the rest 
as a matter of the fact, because we are the institution operating on international uh, on on the national level, and uh, you know our mandate is uh, specified in such a way that you can effectively challenge uh, malpractices of anybody who falls under the category of public authority. Talking about the tax uh, typology of the tax complaints, uh, and uh, you know, inadvertently, I would be ha- would have to become a bit um, technical here. Uh, but uh, uh, we receive. I will just look at the statistics of the previous quarter. Uh, uh, we have such a scenario when uh, uh, you are the buyer, and your seller is supposed to register tax invoice in the special electronic system. Uh, uh, to enable you to uh, qualify for the uh, VAT credit uh, right. once this registration occurs. Mm-hmm. And uh, once it, 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 it happens, as a buyer, you have your so-called uh, 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 limits in, in the respect to uh, software increased, and uh, this would be the limit that you could be entitled to utilize uh, when you are acting as a seller yourself. Right. Uh, sometimes, uh, or this is uh, quite customary right now, the tax authorities would block registration of such a tax in- invoice uh, by employing uh, the various uh, uh, criteria, which uh, at the end of the day um, be based on the allegation that the transaction was fraudulent, or that the uh, particular uh, party uh, uh, is uh, not representing the real sector of the economy, Uh, that they do not have uh, sufficient staff or the equipment. Uh, Another ramification of the same story is that, um, uh, or the same problem is that uh, some of those uh, taxpayers who are approaching us would be included into the list of the so-called risky taxpayers. We have such an instrument uh, within Ukraine's tax uh, administration uh, system. Another very unfortunate uh, um, scenario is when uh, uh, following uh, or actually without approaching us uh, uh, by seeking judicial protection, the taxpayer will receive a positive court decision which would enter into force and that would certainly be subject to enforcement on the part of a tax authority which would be obliged to actually register the tax invoice and uh, the um, uh, tax authority would fail to properly enforce such tax, uh, su- such such court decisions. Ah, so would your recommendations then be the national, the tax court was wrong or the administrative court was wrong and therefore they, you would, the company would take the decision, the, your recommendation to the tax court and say, actually, you should treat us as a non-risky VAT? Mm-hmm. Company? We would uh, indeed, depending upon when we uh, entered into this scenario, if uh, prior to uh, lodging a lawsuit, the complainant were to approach us, we would, of course, uh, if we are convinced, try to pass the message over to the tax authorities, uh, uh, utilizing our own argumentation oh, okay. uh, that uh, the complainant is indeed uh, not a risky one and there are sufficient grounds uh, to believe based on the uh, the following criteria uh, to consider removal of the tax uh, uh, payer from the list of uh, risky ones. Uh, If uh, um, uh, we have not, let's say, been involved on this stage and uh, it has become uh, known to us later after the uh, taxpayer has successfully defended its interest in the court, uh, we would... uh, 
uh, treat the instance of the business malpractice in this case in a somewhat different uh, manner. We would observe it in the fact that the tax that uh, the, the court decision as such uh, is not being enforced. Mm. So uh, in the first instance, the um, malpractice is uh, the uh, frivolous decision to treat the taxpayer as risky. In mm-hmm. the second one, malpractice is in the fact that, well, this marriage has already been resolved. Yeah, the Ukrainian court has already right. opined on the merits. Therefore, the malpractice is in the failure to enforce such court decision. Right. Interesting. I think this is, I mean, such a useful tool for, especially in some smaller disputes, because I know that, for example, there's a um, exit case against Nepal now dealing with like a tax on a, a, mm-hmm. a telecommunication company, and it had to go through all the way up to the Supreme Court and then into arbitration. And I, th- I mean, the value of that case was quite high, but I think, you know, in some small, I've seen cases in Saudi, I'm sure you have, where, you know, the, the amount in dispute isn't enough to justify starting an investment arbitration against a tax authority. Right. Or, and so you to have this option, not only as a piece of evidence to bring to a later proceeding, but just to maybe give teeth to what the company is feeling. I think this is a, a unique opportunity for, for many companies, especially in, you know, any country, really. Indeed, you're absolutely right that uh, statistically speaking, 80% of our complainants are small and medium-sized businesses. 20% are large. Uh, but that's kind of a natural effect of how many... The, 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 the number of small exceeds the number of large, right? This is... Uh, the same proportion uh, may, is maintained when you compare what is uh, in terms of our complainants profile. Uh, 20% are, these are still Ukrainian legal entities, but, but owned by foreign investors and 80% purely Ukrainian business. That's one thing. Another, um, when we were talking about our mandate, it's kind of uh, in, important, would be important to emphasize that uh, those merits that would, uh, in the tradition of the Ukrainian administrative court, would not be regarded as a litigious circumstances, mm-hmm. for instance, because uh, the court would observe that the claimant is attempting to challenge the manner in which the public authority is exercises uh, the param- parameters of its discretion. Right. Well, but uh, par- parameters are A, B, C, D, E, E, F, and any decision or action which falls within these parameters is legitimate. There is nothing to litigate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, our mandate is broader because we look whether this exercise was fair or not. And in this sense, um, the beauty of what we're doing is that not only we are a pretrial institution, but we are actually broader than the conventional administrative court. I, I know from my colleagues that in many uh, Western European jurisdictions, uh, probably in most of them, it is really the practice of administrative courts not to accept uh, uh, lawsuits based on the allegation that the uh, uh, public authority has wrongfully exercised its discretion. Absolutely. Because, uh, it, it's not a litigious circumstance. 
Some do. Some do issue uh, some, I mean, judges, courts uh, in, in a smaller number of countries, they are not shy to uh, say to a particular in, uh, ministry or the agency, we want you to do exactly the following. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, 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 in the Ukrainian tradition, it would be more to uh, say uh, this particular instruction number, blah, 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 or the order number, blah, 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 or a tax notification decision is... Um, uh, uh, illicit and has to be rescinded. Uh, but um, uh, if the particular tax notification decision contemplates imposition of certain amount of fine, uh, believe it or not, but it would be eventually left to the discretion of the tax authority whether following the rescission of the tax notification decision, they would have to, as a matter of a restitution, uh, 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 repay the amount of fine that might have right. already been paid. Right. Maybe it's a bit too 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 tricky. No, I think well because what you're getting at it's not only the breadth of the mandate, but it's also a different standard of review. Because if this type mm-hmm. of case would go to investment arbitration, the standard would be denial of justice, and it would be a hugely high threshold for an investor to prove that the administrative court didn't just proceed through its mandate and decide unfairly, but they actually committed something amounting to denial of justice, where right. your mandate, the standard is a lot lower, what you said, which is fairness. So yeah. um, you're able to get kind of a, a stronger argument because your threshold is lower. So I think it, it, it's, it's not too technical. I think it's really interesting. And the last, really last thing is that <laughs> uh, if we... Uh, have to issue our, uh, we have to complete our investigation without achieving successful outcome for the complainant, but we are confident in our uh, uh, approach uh, in supporting the allegation of the complainant. Uh, we would close the investigation, of course, because we would have exhausted all means for a pretrial resolution, mm-hmm. but we would try to be as much specific as it is possible in specifying our position on the merits in the um, kind of explanatory part of this decision, mm-hmm. and the uh, decision would be sent to both the complainee and, of course, the complainant. Mm-hmm. And the complainant is free to do with this uh, whichever uh, the complainant wants, namely to show it in front of the eyes of the administrative judge. Right. And if the judge is uh, adequate, he would appreciate the fact that the Business Ombudsman Council has already gained the reputation of an equally distance. Uh, authority, which uh, uh, is uh, respected, and the treatment of what we have written there would be like equal to or even higher than the attitude towards the view expressed by a uh, a respectable uh, academia or expert in the field, generally. So it's not confidential? It is, uh, in a sense that uh, we are not entitled to... uh, leak the information about those guys that uh, lodged the complaint with us. Okay. But, uh, of course, we the, the, the documents related to the case, are uh, we are obliged to disclose them to the complainant, of course, and the decision is one of the inherent decisions. And then the complainant is free to do anything it wants. With okay, it. so it's confidential. You have a confidentiality obligation, but the complainant, the parties between themselves, maybe they don't... Is, is my understanding correct that they don't, unless they agree, or is it that it is confidential between them as well? Like it should, it is, can the complainant use your decision before a court without the agreement of the other side? Yes, because okay. uh, in this particular case, uh, the uh, determining factor is that the other side is the public authority. Of course, yes, of course, mm-hmm. so they're going to oppose to it otherwise. Yeah, okay. 
Very interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, maybe it's because we're obsessed with arbitration. <laughs> Whatever you said, uh, in my mind, it's like, whoa, that is like ground for a potential investment arbitration claim. I'm, I'm, I'm sh- I mean, maybe because it's only been a couple of years since you've, you've created it. But um, I can imagine that there must be some recommendations that will be taken before an exit court, uh, exit tribunal at some point as evidence of, you know, what the conduct was or not arbitrary of the public authority. Maybe you will appear as a witness. Who knows? (laughs) That would be really interesting. uh, uh, I I have to admit that I'm also uh, obsessed with arbitration. I am the founder of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. The only thing (laughs) is that I am not uh, technically entitled to do any uh, arbitration work either as an arbitrator or as a counsel because that would constitute the conflict of interest under the cabinet of ministers resolution but uh, as a uh, fact witness you'll be there you'll be at an exit case as a fact witness right or, uh, yeah well in the due course i guess yes <laughs> yes i i, I uh, <laughs> when i was graduating from that icc international arbitration academy uh, uh, back in 2015, my uh, one of my uh, professors told me that Yaroslav, you have to spend five years working as a deputy business ombudsman, and then you will become quite a formidable uh, source uh, um, uh, in the context of international investment uh, arbitration. Mm, mm. Definitely. Well, I mean, we see the parallels quite clearly. So I absolutely I, I echo mm. your <laughs> professor's sentiments. But thank you, Yaroslav. I think this has been really, really informative and giving us a unique. Um, perspective on other alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sadia, uh, Brian, uh, 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 it was an uh, absolute privilege. Thank you very much and all the best uh, with the podcast. Uh, It's extremely appealing to see that uh, um, the uh, original arbitration uh, uh, topic is being expanded to capture all the other uh, facets of what is called ADR. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Hello, and we have a guest with us today to talk about insolvency and arbitration, the intersection between these two topics. We have Andre Montero with us from Quinn Emanuel. Hi, Andre. How are you? Hello, Brian. How are you? Good, good. We were just talking before this segment that uh, our our lockdown woes and how difficult it is to kind of, you know, connect with people at the workplace um, during the lockdown time. So I hope you're doing well. Yeah, well, I'm trying as everyone else. <laughs> I know, we, we can't, we've never done this before, so we, we're doing our best. Um, but we, I reached out to you actually individually because I saw um, on LinkedIn actually that you had published an article on um, Kluber about insolvency and arbitration, and I had been desperate to do it. Um, I've been desperate to do this pod, this segment for a while, so I'm happy that you popped up. Um, and so now we have you. And so now I have some questions about this. Um, so you wrote this article about this intersection between these two fields, arbitration and insolvency. Um, so why did you want to look into this topic? Was it the crash of the economy that we're all expecting? Or what was it? What about insolvency? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Brian, for, for your question and for the opportunity to talk to the followers of the Arbitration Station podcast. <laughs> uh, I want to congratulate you, Stadia Bati, and Joel uh, Dahlquist on this great initiative. Um, unfortunately, we are 
not talking in person over a cup of tea in, uh, in the large and high-tech studios of the arbitration news station. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> even, so, even so, it's a pleasure to talk uh, with you guys. Yes, oh, to, to answer your question, yes. Uh, I wrote an article on this topic uh, published on the Hoover Arbitration blog on February 4th. Uh, I decided to look into this topic for two reasons. Uh, firstly, because of the economic crisis caused by COVID-19. Um, in December last year, the OACD reported that global GDP had decreased 4.2% as a result of the pandemic. Wow. So this, uh, and unfortunately, some business will not survive this crisis. Some of them are parties to pre-existing arbitration agreements and, and also to ongoing arbitrations. Uh, so I, I have little doubt that insolvency and arbitration is a hot topic for 2021. And this is probably the reason why the IBA Arbitration Committee has established a group of national specialists to prepare a report on this topic which oh. will be available soon, I think, like in one, two months' time, I would say. I'm one of the, one of the members of, of, of this group. Oh, you are? How many people are in that group? Oh, I think it's 20, 20 okay. specialists for different countries, I'd say uh, 15, 12, 15 countries. Yes, yes. Very interesting. So you're representing which? Brazil. Yeah, I'm representing Brazil with a friend of mine called Renato um, Grion, uh, and we and we sent the final report uh, two weeks ago, and I think you know the 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 chairs of the arbitration committee are reviewing the report now, and I think in one two months time they will they will release them. Let's see. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, so it's just going to be a comparative between several countries about how they're dealing with insolvency and arbitration. Yes, exactly. And I thought, and I think that we will suggest like uh, the best practice as well. Oh, okay. Very good. Well, yeah. you mentioned in your article, um, in the introduction, you mentioned that arbitration, the world of arbitration and the world of insolvency are two separate worlds. Um, so what, what do you mean by that being two separate worlds? Yeah. I, I said arbitration and insolvency belong to two different worlds because the underlying policies are very different. Um, generally speaking, arbitration aims to enforce part autonomy and to ensure that the winning party gets what it deserves, regardless of you know other creditors, employees, public treasury, etc. Mm. So I guess. I guess it's correct to say that arbitration is predominantly an individually focused method of dispute resolution. And conversely, uh, insolvency is, you know, it's an attempt to rescue a viable business or when rescue is no longer possible, an attempt to return productive resource to the market, like, you know, workforce, assets, uh, machinery, um, so unlike arbitration, insolvency law balances the interest of the insolvent party mm. with the interest of several creditors and other stakeholders. So it's a, it's a more collectively focused method of solving disputes. So, you know, I think it's 
very different underlying policies, as I said. And of course, you know, unsurprisingly, sometimes these policies clash. Right. No, absolutely. I've had a case um, where I had one case where this uh, issue of insolvency um, had to deal with the um, doctrine of estoppel and whether the claim could continue. But I think we'll get into that um, a bit later. But the focus of, I mean, I guess what you're doing on this task force and also the focus of the article is from the Brazilian perspective. So um, we actually haven't had a Brazilian guest yet on the show. So here we are uh, bringing the Brazilian perspective. But what what happens? What has happened in Brazil um, to kind of for you to shed light on on this topic? Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So this is this is the second reason why I decided to 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 wrote this article. Oh, okay. Um, Brazil Brazil um, uh, Brazil enacted in December last year a new insolvency act, um, which deals with you know a few arbitration-related issues. Um, so the new, uh, and, and, you know, and it's, and it's, I would say it's, it's, it's uh, arbitration-friendly, very arbitration-friendly. Uh, so the New Brazilian Insolvency Act um, uh, bro, uh, deals with two important issues uh, related to insolvency and, and arbitration. So uh, basically, basically the, the new law says that uh, the commencement of uh, judicial organ reorganization or the insurance of uh, widening up order does not affect the enforceability of pre-existing arbitration agreements. Uh, also, also, the automatic state period does not apply to arbitration. Uh, and finally... Three free issues, actually, not two free issues. Uh, and finally, uh, the trustee or liquidator is not allowed to terminate pre-existing arbitration agreements. So mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's a pretty friendly approach towards arbitration. And is this, was it previously not included in the legislation or this is now a change? Yes, exactly. It's a change. Okay. Uh, Previous law was completely silent, and we, we had some you know some cases and case law, but uh, but you know you know Brazil is a civil law country and everything needs to <laughs> needs to be on the on the statutes. Of course, yeah, and, and so the previous law was silent, and now this new act uh, is providing for all of these uh, situations. I think it's pretty good. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and this is kind of leads me to my next question, which is you see a lot of domestic law really infiltrating these international arbitrations. Um, so when I mentioned the case that I had, it was US law, um, US insolvency law, and which claims would actually be waived um, after they've entered into insolvency, and you've reached some sort of settlement agreement with the creditors. And it was very US focused. And I thought, how interesting that it could have a procedural effect on the international arbitration when it's so domestic. Um, and so is there anything in the international realm that regulates all of this? Or are we just as practitioners have to become experts in the insolvency laws of different countries around the world? <laughs> yeah, so I think we need to understand insolvency law all over the world. I guess so. Uh, <laughs> So 
yeah. Well, you know, it it, it involves you know, um, it involves one of the most complex topics in international arbitration, uh, which is the applicable law to insolvency-related issues. Uh, you should have asked uh, Young Paulson about you know, a few weeks ago. Oh yeah. <laughs> about these issues. Not not me. This is really hard. This is a really hard question for me. But you know <laughs> anyway. We'll get him on again. I, yeah. Well, you know, I don't have time to present a comprehensive view about this issue, but um, I think I can summarize a, a very few points if you okay. want. Um, so let's think about an, an example. Um, let's assume we are lawyers in an international arbitration case representing party A uh, against party B. And just after the filing of the statement of defense, party B is declared bankrupt. Not not good for us uh, representing the claimant, not good for us. No. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the question is, uh, and they and they, uh, and they are from different countries, part A and part B. Uh, the question is, in this situation, which legal systems do we need to check? Uh, so basically, the legal system of the seat of the arbitration and the legal system of the main place of business of mm -hmm. the government party. Uh, the seat of the arbitration. Uh, so, you know, in some jurisdictions, uh, monetary claims against insolvent parties must be resolved before courts, not before arbitration, uh, which may drag us into complex discussions about inhabitability and public policy. Uh, so if you disregard mandatory legal provisions of the state uh, and inhabitability and public policy, uh, the chances of having your award annulled are high because the courts of the seat of the arbitration are the ones which have jurisdiction to set aside uh, the award. Um, and, and secondly, the, the main place of business, also called place of incorporation, if I'm not wrong, um, of the insolvent party. So this is normally the place where uh, the main insolvency proceedings have been carried out by the courts. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and... And, and this is the place where you need to enforce your arbitral award because, because the assets are there uh, uh, and, you know, you, you cannot reach the assets of insolvent party outside the insolvency court. Right. Uh, so, again, if you disregard mandatory legal provisions of the main place of business, of the, of the place where the, the insolvency proceedings are carrying out uh, by the court. Um, so the chances of not having your award recognized in that place are high on the grounds of you know, incapacity of the insolvent party, invalidity of the provision agreement, inevitability, public policy. We saw a bit of this discussion in the famous case Electrin and Vivendi, mm -hmm. where English courts and Swiss courts reached different conclusions, <laughs> and the English the English solution was more arbitration friendly. Um, it also happened in the case Advendis and Royal Unbrew, I think, decided by the Swedish Court of Appeal. 
So uh, it's not an easy task. You really need to understand um, the, the effects of insolvency according to at least the law of the city of arbitration mm-hmm. and the law of the, you know, of the main place of business of the insolvent party, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, you, your example brings up a lot of different <laughs> topics. In just that one simple example, we have a load of issues. Um, can you, do you want to just kind of continue and tell us where insolvency can kind of show its face in arbitration and in different parts of the proceedings? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, for example, uh, the effects of insolvency on the validity of the arbitration agreement and also the obligation to, you know, to state arbitral proceedings in favor of insolvency. Um, so, um, you know, in England and Wales, for example, uh, so pre-existing arbitration agreements may still be enforceable as long as the trustee gives his or her consent. Uh, whether the trustee decides to discharge the arbitration agreement, an application to the English High Court can be made in order to obtain permission. As regard to ongoing arbitration, the court's permission must be obtained once uh, a winding up order has been made. So as long as the court permits, the automatic stay does not affect arbitration. In the US, uh, arbitration brought, and you are the specialist in, in American law, please correct me. <laughs> and, but as far as I know, mm-hmm. the U.S. arbitration brought against the insolvent party must be stayed. But it's possible to ask the court to lift the stay and allow the arbitration to move forward. I don't, you know, I don't have data uh, to give you about that. You probably know much better than me about this topic. But um, I had a look, and Gary Bourne says that, in general, American courts give such permission, leaving the state, not sure if it's right. Probably yes. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Um, that's it? Okay, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in Brazil, for example, as, as I mentioned before, the commencement of a judicial reorganization or the insurance, the insurance of winding up orders does not affect responsibility of pre-existing arbitration agreement and does not cause the state of uh, ongoing uh, arbitrations. Um, so, you know, very different solutions in, in different countries. <laughs> does Brazil recognize the principle of, um, or well, I'll start with the insolvency issues. So in Brazil, if you have um, a party that's entering into liquidation, do you have a similar procedure where every, every creditor needs to file their claim and then they make a settlement agreement with all of the creditors and then that's considered rest judicata for those for all of those claims, even claims that have not been brought? Yeah, well, um, so I would say something similar. Let, let me see. Um, so in, in judicial reorganization, yeah. there is what you call a judicial reorganization plan and... So all of the all of the, the insolvent party and the creditors they designed this plan dealing with all of the creditor credits. Uh, and yes, I think this is something similar. I would say, yeah, uh, to what you said, yes. Um, but you know, um, 
even so, um, so you you um, you have you 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 can I would say uh, register maybe that's the word your yeah. your credit uh, into this plan, but only if you have a recognized credit, which means you need a previous judicial decision or an actual word recognizing this credit as a valid credit. I see. So um, in 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 the majority of cases, um, so we, we you have a have a credit arisen from a contract signed with the insolvent party, and you need to start arbitration or court proceedings uh, to first uh, get this credit recognized, and then you use this uh, word or this judicial decision as a proof of claim. I see. Yeah, so, you know, uh, there are a lot of space, I would say, for arbitration, um, uh, even, even, even with the, 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 recognition, the, the judicial reorganization plan, I think. Right. Yeah, because in the U.S., it's a bit different in the sense that even if you have a, you have a potential claim, you have to raise it because if they go through that reorganization and you do have not filed even your potential claim, that that claim is considered uh, waived um, or, or you're stopped from raising it, which is how it kind of can come up procedurally in an arbitration if you have the same parties dealing with um, similar issues. But what about the other side of the, so you have an arbitral award, um, just like you were saying, and then you know, how does, is it different in different countries on recognizing against an insolvent party? Do you have to go to a liquidator and initiate some sort of like another claim proceedings? Or in Brazil, you're saying you you would have to get an arbitral award and bring it to recognize your claim. Would that have to go through the recognition and enforcement process separately? Or how would that, how would that work? Yes, yes. Oh, I think in most of, of the country, because, you know, because we don't have... Uh, a convention like the New York Convention dealing with uh, insolvency issues. Mm-hmm. In general, we we need to to take our arbitral word and and try to recognize it in other countries in the in, in the place where the insolvency proceedings uh, are, um, and and it's not an easy task uh, because you know the New York Convention establishes in section five, paragraphs one and two, at least four grounds that mm-hmm. can be argued, yes, can be argued by the insolvent party to get an arbitral award not recognizing um, uh, the incapacity of the insolvent party, uh, invalidity of the agreement, adaptability, and public policy issues. And and you know some of them are regulated by some of these issues are regulated by different laws, uh, and so it's 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 not a hard task to recognize an actual award in the in a country um, where the insolvent proceedings uh, have been carried carried out mm-hmm. in, in the courts in the insolvency courts, uh, for example, incapacity. Um, it's generally assessed according to um, the personal law, which is, in the case of companies, uh, the law of the place of incorporation. Mm-hmm. The validity 
is assessed according to the New Convention, assessed under the law of the seat of the arbitration, unless the party has entered into a choice of law clause uh, in arbitrability according to the law of the country where the interest party is trying to enforce the word. And public policy according to the law of the host country. So different laws um, applying in the recognition uh, proceedings and yeah, it's, it's not it's not really a hard task. <laughs> it's right. not really a easy task. No, 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 no. It's a conflict of laws nightmare. Uh, it sounds like. But and then but you know, it seems like there is a possibility that you would win, you know, you go through an arbitration, you get your award, and then you try to enforce it. And the host state says, or the, you know, the the country where the of the of incorporation, that court says, well, they're insolvent. So you're not you and we've already gone through insolvency proceedings, so you're not entitled to anything. Yeah, possible. <laughs> right. So is there any protections that a party can have against a almost insolvent party or an insolvent party? Yeah, well, this is a really good question um, because it connects connects uh, arbitration, insolvency, uh, security for costs, uh, and third-party funding, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could, we could write a book on this topic. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time to have a plan. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Nothing else to do. Yeah, well, no, I, I, I would try to be brief. Um, when the when the insolvent party is is the claimant, uh, the respondent will probably apply for security for costs. I think you know this is the right thing to do if you are litigation litigation with an insolvent party um, on the grounds that the insolvent party might not be able to pay potential adverse costs. Uh, generally speaking, insolvency may represent a fundamental change of circumstances, which would justify granting security for costs. In this case, in these cases, third-party funding is definitely a good option, uh, not only for paying security for costs. Uh, sometimes the insolvent party has a meritorious claim against wealthy respondents, uh, but it doesn't have enough funds to commence the arbitration, and it may represent an issue of access of justice. Um, so, yeah, you know, the prior funding is welcome in this context. So you're saying, you know, to protect maybe the right the defendant if the claimant is an insolvent party. So, you know, uh, yeah, so make an application for security courses, I think is a good idea. And if you are on the other side mm-hmm. representing uh, the, the insolvent party, third-party funding is a good option to allow you to bring the claim um, even in, in this economic uh, or financial uh, challenging situation. Yeah, I've had two investment cases where I've represented claimants and it's actually just been the the trustee or the liquidator, which is actually really difficult because they're often not posed to be, you know, lawyers dealing with investment decisions. And so they're making kind of just a financial decision on behalf of the company without having that like 
the care and the love that a, that a true client has about their business. But um, yeah, it is, it is, I, I guess funding is becoming really popular for insolvent parties. And I think a lot of insolvent parties are doing, you know, trying to initiate arbitrations as, as the last resort to, to recover any money. So um, we see it there. It's just difficult because they're not getting the full compensation, uh, you know, on the back end because it has to go through the trustees. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, you know, depend, depending on the applicable law or should the insolvency proceedings, uh, the trustee or liquidator will need to see court approval as well or authorization of the creditors committee to, to sign a third party funding agreement as uh, right. in, you know, in general funders claim in return a share of any recovery made through the arbitration. You know, they are taking on the risks of the case and they are not charity. So sometimes this, you know, this process of, you know, first convince um, the trustee or liquidator and then to seek court approval or the approval of the creditors committee, you know, it's a, it's a long right. Yeah, I didn't know that when I was working with this, with this trustee, he, you know, we kept having to go back to the domestic court and seek approval from the judge, taking kind of our submissions and being like, you know, this is what we're going to do. Can we do this? It's such, it's a lot of red tape and it's a lot of work just to get, you know, ev you know, every step of the case approved. If you want to seek annulment or if you want to challenge the award, all that stuff needs to basically be approved. Is that common in most jurisdictions? Do you know, or just the ones you've seen? As far as, far as I know, it's, it's common in, in all, in all jurisdictions because, you know, in the end you are dealing with, with the assets of the insolvent right. party. <laughs> Right. And what about within the arbitration? So we're talking mostly about the domestic, the power of the domestic courts and kind of what they do. But what about the arbitral tribunal? Um, do they have any powers regarding, you know, insolvency issues? Or is it just kind of fitting within the context of the claims under the arbitration laws? Yeah, um, this, is, this is a really, really interesting um, question. And uh, you know, uh, as I said, insolvency and arbitration, you know, belong to different worlds, and there are mm -hmm. a lot of unsettled issues uh, to be solved. I may say, however, that it's less controversial that core insolvency matters cannot be subject to arbitration. Um, Widening up orders are core insolvency matters and therefore arbitral tribunals uh, don't have power to grant then. Uh, all the examples of core insolvency matters are uh, the nomination of the trustee or liquidator, uh, the approval of the judicial reorganization plan, uh, decisions dealing with the insolvent parties' assets, for example, you know, freezing orders, search and seizure orders, order for sales, etc. Right. Um, Decisions regarding the commencement or closing of insolvency proceedings and also criminal offenses related to insolvency proceedings. So in most of the jurisdictions, as far as I know, in most of the jurisdictions, these core insolvency matters cannot be subject to arbitration and, you know, 
that mm-hmm. they, they must be exclusively handled by courts and the arbitration. They, they, they don't have power to, to, to deal with these, with these matters, I'd say. That makes sense. Um, that then arbitral tribunal wouldn't have because yeah, I, I it, that's they wouldn't have jurisdiction over the incorporation and any winding up proceeding procedures of the company. So that that kind of makes sense. I wonder if it's been tested, but it seems to be completely out of the scope of their mandate. No, I, I've never I've never seen any case dealing with these specific core insolvency issues, and and I think you know I think it makes sense because. It uh, you know it is dealing with third party interests as well, so other creditors and stakeholders in general um, who are not parties to the arbitration agreement, they are not subject to the jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal. So I think I think maybe that's the reason why right these credit issues these you know these things are dealing exclusively by by the courts. I, th- I think it makes sense in this case. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, it, basically, my initial question was, do we need to be experts in various domestic laws and, and insolvency? And I guess the, the answer remains that we do, or we need to find local counsel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. I'm glad we talked about this because I, ne- I hadn't put, when I had asked you to come on, I didn't even put two and two together that, you know, COVID-19 was going to potentially bear, or I guess you said the GDP has, the global GDP has decreased, but the, the, the effect of the financial effect of COVID-19, we still don't know yet, but it has the potential to be quite drastic and that could render a lot of insolvency issues. So it's not just delayed delivery is the only effect of a COVID-19 as far as disputes are concerned. It's actually insolvency could be, could be a huge consideration. Yes, exactly. For the review, I think, we start seeing the effects of the COVID-19 now in 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think we will face a lot of uh, insolvency-related matters in our arbitrations. I think it's time to start studying insolvency law. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is something that, that, you know, as disputes lawyers, you kind of just think isn't going to affect you unless you're a bankruptcy lawyer. Um, But it it has huge, it has huge implications. An entire case that I was working on was thrown out because of, because of insolvency issues, because the parties were stopped um, from bringing the claims because they hadn't raised them in the insolvency proceedings. And so, yeah, it's definitely something to keep an eye out for. Uh, Thank you so much for giving this presentation and, and taking time on a Friday to, to talk about this. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Brian, for the invitation again. And congratulations again on this initiative. Thank you. So a panel is a panel consisting only of men. And we have talked about this on another episode. I feel like this is the most common phrase that I say on this podcast. As we've talked about on another episode, <laughs> we've already addressed this in another. See infra, see mm-hmm. infra. <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah, that's basically just legal drafting, but we're doing it in podcast form. Before Sadia joined, back when we were still a Manal podcast, we were also a defective podcast. I don't know if you remember Brian, but right. there was some somebody whose name I don't even recall trying to launch the phrase "defective tribunals." I think as a phrase for tribunals that only contain three white men. 
and then apply that term to defective panels and defective podcasts and other uh, other things and entities. But this topic, the Manol topic, is specific to panels, which matters because, as we know, and as Sadia has already very effectively demonstrated, this is a panel-driven, a conference-driven world, the world of international arbitration. And if you want to mm. get on tribunals and, and get instructed and basically whatever you want to do, what, whatever your professional ambition is in the world of arbitration, speaking on panels is a way to end up there. And historically, it's been a male-driven world. And I think we should start this whole discussion. And I know you're both a little bit skeptical whether this is worthy of a discussion. We'll see where we end up. We should start by saying that uh, in terms of manals, the world of arbitration is better than it was before, but that is just because before it was terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't mean we are still where we want to be, as with so many things relating to diversity and equality more generally, we have ways to go. Um, I will refer to something that Lucy Greenwood, who I think we've referred to a few times in the past as well, Mm -hmm. uh, a UK-based arbitrator. She wrote in last spring, spring of 2020, about mm -hmm. Manals, actually, uh, because she was interested in the extent to which Manals still happen in international arbitration. Mm -hmm. Out of the 231 international arbitration conferences that she looked at in 2019, there were 82 Manals. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, <clears throat> I know. That's by, I did, you know, obviously, this is not how you, how you do math, but that means... In on average, every third conference had a, a, a panel, a panel with only men on it. Yeah. Right. And she also looked at the webinar schedule of one specific arbitration institution uh, from April 2020 to July 2020, in excluding events aimed at young practitioners and taking into account all external speakers. 28% of panels were manals. Mm. And the numbers are generally very disappointing if we look beyond manals, just look at keynote speakers uh, in more general the composition of the speakers it is equally depressing but I think uh, mantles are different I don't know if you agree but to me this is kind of a no-brainer and I think even the most cranky conservative would, would support the idea of no mantles on principle you can make the case that we should strive for a representative composition of panels generally say you know 50 50 men women is ideal and I think that's something where reasonable people can at least differ and say, oh, why should we force a 50-50 split, et cetera? But saying panels should not be all male, on the other hand, is something close to everyone would agree on, mm -hmm. I think, at least in theory, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the problem is that people don't actively think about the issue. And so when they invite people, the first names that pop up or the only names that come up are from males and maybe only a few women. So they think like, oh yeah, we've invited women. And often the case, at least in my experience, organizing conferences and having just done one recently, actually that issue came up, is you have a very nice looking draft of, you know, proposal of speakers and so on and so forth. You invite them, it is a 50-50 representation. And then if you actually think about it, you really are happy about this. And then, of course, things happen last minute, always do. So you have people canceling, um, not making it, and then you want to look for a replacement then, you know, and then it's always kind of like, oh, gosh, people 
hardly ever think at that time we have to maintain that you know representation of women in the panel even though we have a cancellation um because you're like oh no we just need somebody to replace and that's nice and And i think that's also when you have to correct the other person (laughs) and be like no i'm sorry we need a replacement same gender (laughs) or but it's a bit delicate right to to say that um well, uh, it, this Lucy Greenwood statistic, that was done, you said, in the spring. So this is like lockdown. So most of these must have been online. So the there were two different things. Oh. One of them was 2019 pre-lockdown. The other one oh. was like first half of 2020 based oh, on right. webinars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because to, just to your point, Sadia, is that like, you know, it, it goes to availability. And a lot of these things is like, okay, uh, who can make it? Who can travel? Who can come here mm-hmm. in time? But now there is zero excuse because everyone yeah. is available. And there's no, besides time change, there's no hindrance for you to be able to get someone with that specific background or, you know, in, in either gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is no excuse. The, the historical excuse was that you couldn't find anyone with like the requisite experience and, and in this geography that blah, 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 that could be that gender. But that is just the failure of the institution on its own mm-hmm. that you can't produce these people with these types of experience. But now that whole excuse is defunct and extinct. Um, now it's just laziness and um, being completely But you know off. what, Brian, I still hear that. I still, even recently, I think there was a really interesting panel um, and I commented on the social network saying it's such a shame that they were all men, you know, it really was a panel. And uh, the person, the organization committee responded saying, oh, we, we tried to find someone, you know, the same excuse. Right. We couldn't find anyone. It's like, are you serious? Come on, you know? Or, you, or they just invite this one person, right, who's a woman and who then can't make it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so then, of course, then it's a manual. And then you're like, well, I tried. I tried really hard. And right. She's I think also what, one way to, to address that is to shift the responsibility at least somewhat away from the organizers and, and to the speakers as mm-hmm. well. There's this... Several, I guess, no no manual pledges out there mm-hmm. that I think as a man you should take. And I signed up to something years ago back when I was an academic. And when you were approached as a man to speak on a panel and the panel happens to be all male in addition to yourself, I think uh, <clears throat> if you have signed up officially or unofficially to a no manual pledge, your job in that situation is to say thanks but no thanks and politely explain why and then recommend a few women from your network to take your place instead yeah because organizers don't always think of it and then you know maybe you don't have to turn it down but at the very least you you have signaled to the the organizers that maybe they haven't thought about something that you really should be thinking about i'm gonna probably gonna say something that's way beyond we're talking about this right now but i equally um get shocked when i see panels with no racial diversity um and that happens, I think the statistics might be even worse. Yeah. Um, and also the problem mm-hmm. being that people don't call them out or don't even see it as an yeah. issue. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's like you say, Joel, I think we should take a pledge to make sure that the, you have equal representation, whether it's gender or something else on the panel. Um, and not accept actually to speak if there's none. Yeah, I think that putting the onus on the actual speakers is is a really interesting point. I think that's a... A great mm-hmm. way to to have accountability for it, and I think Sadi, I don't think you're you know wrong at all to be commenting on the administrators, you know, 
if by commenting on social media, I mean, this is, everyone needs to be accountable. And this is kind of like, you can't shift blame. Like everyone is responsible and everyone should be accountable for it. So I think both are effective and, and helpful. It's also, this whole, whole thing is circular because as I said, initially, this is how you build your profile and your reputation. And that leads to other things that are deemed to be professional successes in our field. But these things come through word of mouth usually it's it's the question comes through people's networks and you have to be in someone's network to get the question to begin with or to have your own network consulted it's completely word of mouth based and if you're not inside of that circle uh, that is self-reinforcing it's kind of hard to get inside mm-hmm. and that's the connection to the, to the pledge as well obviously the equal rights and arbitration pledge about arbitrator appointments that's a pretty good analogy obviously being appointed an arbitrator is a much bigger and more significant thing than speaking on a, a webinar, but it's the same basic tenets of the, the problem. The problem is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially since, I mean, the object of a conference or webinar is to share views. So if you don't have diversity in the panel, the definition of diversity is different views. And, you know, there's been studies on that. It's like you have a different perspective based on also the differences of point of views, but also, you know, racial and gender and all of this. So it's it's a bit of a shame, yeah, that we're, that, you know, those statistics are a bit sad, honestly, that especially in a field like international arbitration, where you would think, well, there are so many, you know, <clears throat> people that do that kind of work. Um, and even if we speak about just women, because it's Women's Day today, um, I mean, I think there are more women uh, lawyers than they are men lawyers at least in France I saw the stats and that was the case um, mm-hmm. so then it's then it really you know it's even worse then because you just like I wonder what the curve looks like though globally or in any given jurisdiction when you look at the how the progression is when mm-hmm. you get more senior right yeah, in the most senior strata of the field I'm sure the majority is still male by quite some margin which is also yeah part of the problem obviously yeah completely indicative of the problem (laughs) yeah exactly because then you it's reflective of of what's going on in the firms yeah and this is the incentive i mean you guys both have have organized conferences and you know you want like the names that will attract the most guests Mm -hmm. and the most attendance so you want someone the most experienced or the biggest title or from the biggest firm to come and speak and then you realize that that's just white men and then you kind of have to reverse engineer your thinking and say okay actually want the most competitive or the most like you know knowledgeable people on this or someone with a unique perspective or someone who's written on this and and you really can't go to that you know this isn't a marketing ploy that you're just trying to like get these big brand names out there you really have to start taking your own initiative to promote voices um i I would be interesting to see um what the statistic is for all women panels because i think i've seen that once in my career um, which I think is equally shocking of a statistic, yeah. an anecdotal statistic, but I don't know how many guys you've, you've have seen. Um, but I, it happens. I've seen it a few more times, but it's, yeah. it's still, it's still so that I react. Yeah, I, I react. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they always make this joke of like, oh, this wasn't calculated, but it's all women because they're competent. But you always talk about it. You always have a comment yeah. about it. <laughs> it's yeah. remarkable. And it, w- it would We're be nice to... But going back to your point, Brian, I think it's a really good one about the fact that, of course, you know, you, you want the most experienced person for the job. And in fact, there's a 
there are a lot of women also talented that have the experience, but the big names are often the same people. So you tend up having an issue also where even if you don't have a manual and you have women, it's always the same right. people who are appointed the same women. Whereas the main, there's a much more diversity in the male people who speak and the women are always the same kind of people who are always invited. So that's also... Yeah, um, you can look at the the arbitrator appointments in the world of investment treaty arbitration. That's exactly. Whenever you like say, oh, but I can't remember the exact number, but it's a larger percentage than you think right. uh, of the arbitrators appointed are women. But if you take out Gabriel Kaufman Kohler and Brigitte Stern, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> very, very, very low all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one thing that was interesting for when I was organizing this Basel conference is there's, you know, there's, of course, you know, these rules about you need, um, you need equal representation, but also making sure that they're not the same people who were invited before. Mm. Um, That's great. Were part, so it's it's good. So you're really looking for new voices, and it's 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 not just the same people over and over again. Um, so that's also something to bear in mind. Brian, will you join me in taking a, a no manal pledge here and now on the podcast? Here and now, I'm yes, absolutely. <laughs> I love how these guys can't never fire me now. Uh, just because <laughs> it's not an all men podcast. No, we have pledged. <laughs> we have pledged. But is there an official pledge, Joel? You said you've taken a pledge. Is there one? Yeah, that, there was. I, I actually Googled as part of my extensive research for this segment. I, yes. I saw several different now, not the one that I remember taking along. There's, there's no official with universal buy-in. I think you can just do it, you know, like this or okay. on Twitter. Or, but or I think the equal can... representation pledge includes that. Uh, that you I think that's specifically about arbitrator appointments, though, isn't it? I thought that I saw something about webinars and conferences also. Oh, like that, would, that would make a lot of sense. Conferences. Yeah, if so, I, I think so. But but it's yeah, no, I think so. Um, we should check that. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen that and I've taken the pledge. So yeah. Well, we verbally take the pledge. Is, is this a happy enough note for you, Sadia, to end? Yes, yeah. not bad. It's a happy. It's a happy note. Things are changing. No more manals. <laughs> Things have changed in the podcast itself. So we're hoping things will change in the future for the rest of the world. There we go. There we go. People in glass houses, right? <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you guys for another great episode. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, John, for, for putting up with us and for editing everything. And you can reach us uh, through email, thearbitrationstation at gmail.com. Oh, shit. We still have a few outstanding emails we haven't responded to, by the way. We should talk about that. Uh, um, apologies to those of you we have not responded to yet. We, we will. We, we are will. talking. Yeah, we coordinate some of our more important emails before we send them. That's why it takes a while. Sorry about that. We're also on Twitter uh, at the ARB station. It's easier and faster if you want to follow That's us. That's true. All right. Bye. See you soon. Bye. Bye.